Exits for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have an amazing doubleheader for you. We have an Exes for Podcast first, followed by a missed issue that we just had to go back and cover. Now that missed issue was February's Legend of Shang-Chi, which was an incredible one-shot by an incredible creative team. We also threw in a little bit more coverage of what is versus what if, the amazing Shang-Chi story from Marvel Voices Identity, their most recent one-shot spotlighting creativity and character diversity. But first up, we have a master of her industry and a leader in her craft coming back to our airwaves. Ariana Mar was kind enough to return to our show to not just talk about her experience as part of lettering in the X office, but what it means to be a letterer at large. She record this episode with us on Letterer Appreciation Day. So talk about really truly giving us a chance to celebrate what she does, but she sat down with Tori and the two of them, as women professional artists in comics, discuss form, craft, evolution, process, concerns about accessibility, the future of the industry, how best to get in, how to network. This segment truly represents everything that you could hope to understand from one of your heroes in your industry, and getting to be part of Tori and Ariana having this conversation really meant the world to me. We can't do enough to help praise women in comics who have been there all along and only are finally now starting to get their due. So we hope you guys enjoy this as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you enjoy what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to check out our YouTube, Twitter, and Patreon where you can find more incredible features like an extended video cut of this in the near future. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to X's for Podcast, where we take a look at comics' mutants, magic, and marvels. I'm Tori, and today we're here to talk to Ariana Ma. How are you doing today? Congratulations. Happy Letters Appreciation Day. Thank you. <laughs> I always like this time of year where I can like just tell my fellow letters how much I appreciate them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why don't you start off by telling us what books you're working on and the teams and what it's like to be brought onto one of those teams? Well, a lot of books I'm working on are with Marvel. Today, in fact, three titles I work on hit the stands. Demon Days, Cursed Web, Hellions, also Wiccan and Hulkling, The Last Annihilation. That one came out today. It was a really cool one shot. And all of those are different teams with like different ways to collaborate with them, but it always starts and stops with the editor. They're usually my point person that I work with on a book. They'll tell me what everyone's needs are. They'll collate all the notes and tell me like how I should revise my files and stuff to make it hit the right notes for the story. So everything is done through the editor. So whenever we have a steady editor, like, you know, steering the ship, the book itself is steady as well. It works really great. Marvel editors are fantastic to work with. I also work on a few DC books, not as many. Most of my slate right now is Marvel, but I do get to work on a few DC books. The major book I'm working on right now is Crush and Lobo. It's a mini series going for eight issues. And I get to work with some, with an editor that I've been wanting to work with for ages and ages and ages and we've done a few short stories together but like the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy short story in Pride from the DC Pride book and we love working together Andrea Shea she's just 
so cool. <laughs> She's definitely someone who is a, a great, great team captain kind of feel. Crush and Lobo is a really great series. I get to do very different things than what I do at Marvel, so so that's nifty. I'm also doing a number of indie books and some that are just with different publishers. One indie book I'm doing with my friend Casey. She was a DM for our old D&D group, and now she's putting out a book called Adventuring Without a License, and it's a Kickstarter right now. Oh, so awesome. hopefully, hopefully that gets attention. Hopefully that gets launched. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Also, there's a graphic novel that's coming out through Skybound called The Sea Serpent's Air, and that book is going to blow people's minds. The artwork in that book is incredible and the story is a really solid really original pirate story that i never saw before so that's awesome so that's a lot of my current slate right now mm -hmm. there's but on top of all that is a bunch of young adult books like mm -hmm. oof the young adult books are a whole different beast in themselves because it's basically, you know, this mini series, let's collate it into one big project mm -hmm. and get it done in these huge chunks. And yeah, that's different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you join the team, is it because the editor knows that you've worked with these people before or they feel that your style would work best? And then what's it like meeting up with the rest of the team for the first time? It depends. I mean, as a lot of, I will say as a letterer, a lot of the interaction, if someone follows me on Twitter or something, they'll see me interact with the creative team on Twitter. That's actually most of the like direct interaction you see me do with a lot of creative teams. Mm -hmm. Because to keep things steady and to prevent any clashing or arguments, a lot of things will go in like a telephone game through the editor. So it's up to the editor to decide like who they want on the team. And sometimes they don't really have anyone they in particular need. And it just kind of goes and gets assigned to one of us. And we just take the assignment and run with it. Sometimes I can talk to my coworkers and be like, like, oh, I want to do that book. Can I do that book? And I'll trade with you. <laughs> because in Marvel, there's the virtual calligraphy team and we'll have our assignments and we'll talk about what our assignments will be and figure out what works for everyone. Because if I'm going on vacation, I have to talk to the guys and be like, hey, who can take my books? <laughs> Who can who can look out for me for this one? So sometimes, you know, you'll see a different letter on a project. It's because someone got overwhelmed or took a vacation or something like that. So it can be a combination of things. Just for certain books, I know an editor picked me for it. And other books I just lucked into, like Hellions and Excalibur was all thanks to Corey Petit. He's a he was the original letters for those for those books. But I started out in Marvel in April of 2020. I didn't have any books assigned to me yet. And I was starting to do like one shots and short things just to, you know, to help out wherever I could, but I didn't have anything like really assigned to me. And Corey just reached out to me. He's like, want to do Excalibur? And I'm like, yes. Yes. <laughs> because it has all my favorite characters. So yes, please. <laughs> So there's a lot of flexibility working in Marvel. With DC, usually it's the editor wants someone in particular, and they'll reach out through. DC has a kind of head of the department who will reach out to me and be like, hey, you want to do this? Andrea knew me from Twitter. We would chat from time to time. We'd always wanted to work together on something big. So she had asked for me directly to work on Crushed and Lobo, which worked out really, really well because it's a creative team I really adore. 
like camera I've worked on before on several projects back just like a few years ago and I absolutely love her work she's one of the best colorists in the business so getting to letter over her color style again is super super exciting and Mariko Tamaki I've I've lettered a bunch of her written stories so far and she's just amazing scriptwriter. so that's some creative teams, I'm just, the way we communicate is through the creative work we're making together. Mm-hmm. And then the editor is our central point for any practical notes we're doing. So yeah, usually I don't get to hear from people, but every once in a while, someone will like DM me and be like, hey, I like what you did with that thing. Can you speak a little bit about at what point you get the story, you get the pages? When do you start putting your work into the work? Back in the day when lettering was done with hand lettering, they the letter started the process really early on mm-hmm. back in you know the inking and, pro- and penciling stage they were trying to get everything set but now that it's digital age we are pretty much the last people in the line and in a lot of cases not always but like a lot of cases we're also the kind of the pre-production people as well we help package the book and send it over for its final like overview before it goes to print and stuff like that. So being the final people at the line, we need two things essentially to get started, the script and the art. As long as we have those in some form, we can start our work. And getting those in the right format is really important to us because if it's in a format we don't expect or are not prepared for, it takes a lot more time. Like if they send us art files, but it's like giant, like giant resolution and with these big unwieldy files that we have to resize, we can do it. It's just, it's a little time consuming and we're not paid for that. <laughs> so right. we'll often send back files if it's like, hey, I can't work with scripts that are in PDF. They're a pain in the butt for the way I copy files over. So please give it to me in Word or something like that. There's like once we have the correct files in the way that we expect them to be, usually art is in TIFF files. The scripts are usually in Word doc. And then we can start breaking down the process and going from there. For me, since I started at Marvel, my entire higher process for lettering has completely changed. When I was an independent creator and working on books, I didn't really have any rules or rhyme or reason. I would just kind of go with the flow. And every time I learned something new, I would change up how I would do things. I was constantly looking for ways to make my process faster and more efficient so I can get more books done so I could get paid more and so on and so forth. I hated turning down projects. I still hate turning down projects, but I can turn down less projects if I can work more and work faster. The thing with Marvel is that Joe Caramanga, he was my mentor when I started out last year. And he pretty much just sat with me, well, figuratively, because he's in New Jersey and I'm over here. But he pretty much went over everything with me, told me how the Marvel way of doing things and how I should go about the process. And then I took a step back and I started to think like, okay, I'm going to take everything I just learned right now. I'm going to make it my own and figure out a process that's going to be fast. Mm-hmm. And I've done that. It's taken a lot of time, but I think I finally get it to where I can let her like... 20 to 40 pages a day if I'm lucky somewhere in that range it's still slower than you know an average but it, it's not too bad 
That's like, it used to be I could get eight pages done in a day, but that was also because I had a 40 hour a week day job. So juggling that was a hassle. Mm -hmm. But actually like Demon Days is a 30 page book. I can get that done in a day if I prepare ahead of time. And now preparations go pretty quickly because I'm doing it the Marvel way. A lot of it has to do with lettering templates. Mm -hmm. When I start on a book, uh, any series, I have to figure out what the lettering style is going to be. And as the letterer, I have to be consistent to that style so that the reader doesn't have to stop and be like, wait, why are they talking? And the dialogue looks different. Why is the font different? Why is the balloons looking different? Because they'll notice the subtle changes. Lettering is all about using its subtlety to its advantage, to lead the reader across the page, not knowing they're being led across the page, making sure there's attention brought to the artwork at key moments, and indicating certain things that are unusual with sound effects or really weird dialogue styles. Like you're going to know that you're, you know, fighting an, an evil villain with a really gravelly voice because I'll give him a really gravelly looking word balloon. And if he's someone like Venom, you can recognize him without him being on the page. These are all like little subtle notes. Yeah, yeah. And so establishing the style is really important. That's the most time-consuming part of a project is getting that style done right, getting it the way everyone wants it to look, and going from there. Once I have the style done, I build up these templates. Like, different letterers do different styles. Sometimes they just keep all their resources on a separate file and draw from it whenever they need it. Others set up their templates a specific way, and it's the same way for each of the books they work on because it has everything on it. For me, I set up templates specific for the book I'm working on. Demon Days has a specific template I've set up for it that's different than Excalibur and so on and so forth. But it'll have all the elements that I need to draw from to do my lettering. It'll have stuff like the dialogue fonts in the different styles like bold, italic, and things. And I would tie those character styles to actions in Illustrator. So I just have to press a button in my keypad to make it bold, italic, and so on. There are word balloon styles for specific villains I have to keep in mind. Like if I'm working on Spider-Man, I'm going to have to have Carnage and Venom styles. There's captions. Certain characters have certain colors or styles to their captions. I have to keep that in mind and keep that on reserve. In Crush and Lobo, Crush has a certain caption style that's like green with pink outline. And I always have to keep that in reserve because that's the style I'm going to be implementing throughout. All these things I'll keep on the side and in the center I'll have the artwork. I put that on the bottom layer and then every layer on top is my lettering stuff. I'll have the, the balloon tail on one layer. I'll have have the fill for the balloon on, on top of that, the lettering text on top of that. And when you see it, all of it flattened, it looks like it's a part of the page, but I can always see it in those layers. And that's how I build out my lettering. That's how I work through it is that I have it all there set up beforehand. I even build out files and subfolders and things where everything can link up to each other once I have the files available. If that wow. makes yeah, no, that makes tons of sense. It is very similar to how my comic has put together like a character Bible and there's all so many references to draw back on and, and mm -hmm. be aware of. So for some of these fonts, when you go in and create them, are you hand creating a font? Are you building off of something that already exists? What's the difference between digital and hand lettering? There is a huge difference between digital and hand lettering. So much so that it's very strange for letterers to see 
awards like the Eisners and such, because we'll get a few of career letterers who are digital letterers getting in the same nomination as, say, Stan Sakai, who hand letters. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, of course Stan Sakai is going to win because he's a hand letterer. Hand lettering is a very incredible art, but it's also a time-consuming so I, I greatly respect it, but I know that it's not something I'm going to do regularly because I have to put, I have to be able to letter a book in a day mm -hmm. and you can't do that with hand lettering. And it's very hard to go back and edit your work and revise the files when the writer wants to change how a sentence looks because you've hand lettered it. You have to go back and revise it even more carefully. It's a very time consuming process. But that doesn't mean I don't implement elements of hand lettering into my work. I do. It's just mostly through sound effects. When it comes to digital lettering, a lot of it has to do with fonts and which fonts I choose to use on a series is based off licenses, especially now that I'm working with the major publishers. Lambot, for example, a lot of their fonts are free to use as long as it's not for the major publishers. Mm -hmm. Just check the license and you should be good to go. Comic Craft, say most of their fonts are paid. So once you purchase the fonts, you you know, you know have it and you're, it's available for you to use for, for publishers. It just depends on whether the publisher has license or wants to use those fonts. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all depending. I keep a font library and I keep track of which ones I can use for which books because that's basically limiting my palette to these specific styles to work with when I'm working on a book. So I have a ton of fonts. <laughs> Thankfully, tax deductible. <laughs> yes. The hand lettering is mostly through sound effects. Can you talk a little bit about sound effects? I know Demon Days, in the first issue, we were just stunned by the lettering work that was done on the Venom reveal in the temple. It was so beautiful. That one was funny because it was actually a very simple sound effect to do as long as I, because I knew where I was going with that. I just wanted to draw these S symbols, right? But it all came down to having the right vector brush to work with. Mm -hmm. Key thing that also is a difference is that if you're hand lettering and you're doing it through a digital medium, you probably will have to use something like Photoshop to draw it out by hand. When you are using uh, Illustrator, you're doing, instead of raster, you're using a vector program. And so there's a limited amount, but there are vector brushes. They can be a little weird to use, so you have to have a careful hand with them. But if you use them just right, you can get some really interesting effects. So those S's were basically me just drawing out the S's and then having a specific brush to work with them and then work them into shapes that will spread across the screen in a way that will look good. Sound effects in Vector really work out nice because you can stretch them and shrink them and it does not reduce the quality of the image. Mm -hmm. While oh, if yes. you're working in Photoshop with raster, it just becomes all blurry. Yes. So there's a lot of, of fun and appeal that I can do there. So it was just a matter of drawing it out, having the right kind of brush to make that look like effective for what Venom is, which is kind of like a goopy serpent kind of feel. And then go from there to just make sure it looks like a part of the page, which is very tricky to do because Peach Momoko's pages, the hand-drawn quality, the watercolor, Copic, and the paper quality means that each page could have slightly different color and tone in the background. Mm -hmm. So when the first issue, when I chose to do the dialogue style, and a lot of the book was a story written in a manga mm -hmm. that Mariko is reading at the end of the book, 
So since she's reading the story in a manga, I decided to give it the aged paper quality, like the slight sepia tone that's in the background as well. Mm -hmm. So all the balloons are slightly beige, you know? But then once you get to Mariko in the modern age, the balloon fill is white because it's just modern age speaking again. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting trying to get my balloons to interact with her art because digital lettering over traditionally drawn artwork always sits rather weird. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's an interesting effort to try to make it so it doesn't look too odd on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And honestly, Demon Days has been such a joy to read and to enjoy. I think you did a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through what your process was like from the beginning with that one just step by step oh sure that sounds like a great place to start i start with Lindsay, the editor sending me the script in the pages mm -hmm. since this particular project is fully drawn and colored by peach momoko when i receive pages i'm receiving finished pages which mm -hmm. is fantastic because on other projects i can receive inks Sometimes if it's a rush and they really need to get some lettering in, and I can have it even down to pencils. But in this, since I'm getting the final files, like the final artwork, it's a lot easier for me to set everything and set up the colors for the sound effects and try to make everything work from my first draft. Mm -hmm. So then I also get the script from Zach Davison. He's a good friend of mine. He, I mean, he's he's been on the podcast as well. Yes, we just spoke with him. He was such a delight. Yeah, he's he's like that in, in person. He's a big personality, and I mm -hmm. and I adore him. He's a great guy. We would do a panel together every convention, like Emerald City or Rose City, mm -hmm. called Fine Print Crew, where we would just you know talk about jobs that don't get big credits, like translating or lettering and stuff. And it's just great. So what he does is that he takes all of her notes and feedback and what she wants out of the story and he adapts it into a script. His script is really great to work with. When I get the script, it's a Word document. And all I have to do is go through and delete everything except the dialogue. Mm -hmm. The dialogue, the sound effect notes, and the page notes, the page numbers. And mm -hmm. if I just have that information, I can like bunch that all together and copy and page, paste it in big batches where like page one would have five lines of dialogue. I would delete all of the artist notes, all the action notes, anything, all of the indicators of the speaker and stuff, just delete everything and just have the line, the five lines of dialogue, copy all of that, bring it over to the lettering template I have set up for Demon Days for page one. Mm -hmm. I have it labeled for page one. It's linked for the artwork for page one. And that file is also linked to InDesign, which has that page on the layer so that the art and the lettering sit together on InDesign too. So all of it's linked together. All of uh -huh. it's ready to go. I copy the text over and I put the text onto the lettering file. I break that text up to separate lines. Lines, mm -hmm. And then I add any you know, like bold, italic, whatever I need that's indicated in the script to add. Then I make them into shapes that work well for word balloons. Mm -hmm. And then I start placing them on the page where they should go, how a person's eye moves across the page. I have to think about that because if you're reading a Western book, you're going to read in a Z style from like left to right, up to down, mm -hmm. in the, like a Z. While in manga, it's an S style. So it can get a little interesting because sometimes when working with either Japanese creators or artists who are greatly influenced by manga, sometimes they forget and flip the order. Since uh -huh. Peach Momoko is an experienced artist and she mainly focuses on 
producing for Western audiences, I don't have that problem. She's very experienced and she has a really good eye for how things flow over the page. So I just follow where the script and the art is taking me. So that's pretty easy to go. Sometimes it's not so easy on on other books I've worked on in the past because sometimes they start thinking in the other direction and I can tell. Yeah. So once I have all the placements in place and I've I've placed the text everywhere, I set up all the balloons. Mm -hmm. Then I set up the outlines for the balloons so that you have in Demon Days in particular, there's a specific brush line outline that I set up as the style for the balloons. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a clean white balloon and then the black outline is uneven. Mm. And I made that part of the process because it gives it a little bit more of a quality where someone drew it in with an uneven pen, Mm -hmm. you know, or uh, with the brush stroke instead, like a really thin brush stroke. So that way it can sit with the art a little better than if it was just a clean black line. Mm -hmm. And um, then the the most time-consuming part of the step after that, after I've set everything up, is finalizing the work by putting in word balloons, you know, like doing any special effects. Mm-hmm. I have to like refine those, create those, blow them up, make them like really stand out on the page in any particular way that they need to for that scene. There's one scene where I have to be really subtle, and there's like a small bamf sound mm-hmm. in the woods and it's just a small little like kind of white outline because you know it's there but you're not supposed to notice it too strongly mm-hmm. you notice there if you look for it kind of feel yeah and uh, because it's supposed to be rather quiet like the characters in the scene don't notice that's happening mm-hmm. meanwhile there's a scene where a uh, wolf is growling very loudly and very threateningly and so I have to like make that a big part of the scene mm-hmm. and for that one in particular I kept the colors light because there is a sound effect that Peach Momoko writes in in a later panel where she kind of does it in that same style. Mm. So her her lettering for her sound effects are all in Japanese mm-hmm. and all of mine are in English. And originally we wondered if we should convert the Japanese into English, except there are two problems. One, I'm a digital letter for Western comics. My experience for manga lettering is next to nil. Mm-hmm. And manga letterers are art artists in their own way. They are exceptionally, exceptionally well well done artists. They they have to erase sound effects, draw in new sound effects in English, and make it look natural to the manga page. They even have to erase and redo screen tone. It's incredible what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's not given enough credit. I could go on about that for hours. But that takes a skill set that I didn't feel confident with. But on Mm. top of that, they didn't even ask me to do it because her sound effects are so pretty. Mm -hmm. When when Peach Momoko draws a sound effect in, it's like, that's beautiful. And you get the gist of what that is. There's a bite sound effect where it Mm -hmm. says gabu. Mm -hmm. Except any Western reader who doesn't know Japanese does not know that says gabu. Mm -hmm. But it's such a crinkly, violent, angry feel to the sound effect. And it's in a panel where it gives you the context of what who is biting what that you already get it Mm -hmm. so when she chooses to do a sound effect we decided no we weren't gonna we weren't going to redo it with my my sound effects i didn't Mm -hmm. feel like it would do it any justice and on top of it we weren't going to go the other uh, manga translation method of having a translation like bite or whatever Mm -hmm. and putting it in the corner because one it can be distracting and two it's not necessary yeah 
when she draws a sound effect into the page, she's doing it for a purpose. And we decide we're going to just respect that purpose and the feel it gives to the book and go from there. So my sound effects have to not distract from her style, Mm -hmm. except her style is very loud and strong. So my sound effects also have to be equally strong, but matching her vibe, even though I can't match her style. So it's it's definitely a hard balance to make where I'm choosing a sound effect. In a lot of cases for Demon Days in particular, I can't just go with a font. Mm-hmm. I really do have to play with vector brushes and hand draw it in. Like the wolf growling really loudly. Those are all hand drawn because it's the only way I can get it rough enough to look. Mm-hmm. There's not just an easy font that can solve that. Right. Meanwhile, right. there can be another scene where someone is getting hit and I just need something a little bit cleaner so I can use a font, but I'm going to make the edge a little uneven, give it a, a bit of a wobbly feel to it. So it's just a matter of trying to figure out what you want the sound effect to do and how you want to convey that emotion mm-hmm. and how it will help tell the story. Awesome. The lettering can really be part of the storyline. I know our letterer for our comics has brought so much to the storyline when they get in there. It's really astounding. You mentioned a couple of the other series that you worked on. How are they different from how you work on Demon Days? It's different because the team composition is particularly different. In Demon Days, Zach has a lot of leeway on how he writes the script, but Peach Momoko has the final say. She gives the feel for the book. She colors it she draws it it's definitely her book and it's like she's the ship Lindsay's guiding it and we're keep helping keep it afloat mm-hmm. <laughs> goes through the scenes <laughs> hellions or excalibur or like just one of the major books it's a lot more of the writers send the script in and the artists send the pages in and the editors kind of compose everything together They give me the directions and a lot of it isn't so much pushed forward by the artist or the writer. It's the editor coming in and being like, okay, this is the finished product we want. How do we guide this through? Mm -hmm. And they'll give direction to the writer. And I can see them debate at times over which direction they want things to go. And um, it can be much more centered that way. It's a a matter of seeing like who takes direction and, and how to follow that. But when it comes down to all the nitty gritty of making the book, It's still the same method. They give me the pages, I letter the pages, I send it in, and then I get feedback. I use those feedback to make the revisions, I send the revisions back in, the whole team looks at it again, I get more feedback, and then we go from there until the book is done. The feel may be a little bit different, but the mechanics of it is the same. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. What are some of the tips and tricks that you found to help make it faster for you? Link everything up. I Mm -hmm. used to take each page and embed it into my lettering file and work from there thinking it would make for a clearer file I don't know why I thought that (laughs) but then I realized if I could link everything it would make it faster Mm -hmm. because if they send me like say they send me black and white files like inked files and I'm better over the inked files. I get the color files and I want to make, check to make sure that nothing's changed. Like say, for example, the inked files had black borders to the panels. But if a colorist decides no white borders for the panels, all of a sudden I have to change all of the lettering where it butts against the panels because mm-hmm. maybe it's showing lines where it shouldn't show lines. So I have to check over all that. It's a lot easier for me to just have all the files named the same. 
take the new files, have them overwrite the old files. And when I open up the lettering templates, the links update automatically. So I, I can already see what the what the pages are without having to go through all the steps of relinking everything, of re-embedding everything. Mm-hmm. Links are amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. You change one element, every other element changes. Another thing I realized is actions. Mm-hmm. Illustrator has actions that you can build and you can make those. Like I have actions set up to against the font. So when I build up a style for the book, I make character styles, which you can do in Illustrator. Mm-hmm. You can designate a character style and give that style a name. So I Usually for each book, I'll have something like dialogue, italic, bold. Mm -hmm. And then I have an action set up that when I press a button, it goes to the character style and uses that style. So all I have to do is press a button and all of a sudden my word is bolded instead Mm -hmm. of going in finding the bold and bolding. Mm-hmm. Another thing I use a lot are actions I set up for exporting files in a certain way because they need files exported in a certain way to work as part of the process. Mm-hmm. I have other ones that will place the art- artwork in automatically. All I have to do is select which file I want to use. Mm-hmm. And I even have it so that all of my X-Men books, I have all the files pre-made. Oh, wow. Everything's pre-made. What I did is that I went into the art folder and I just made blank files mm-hmm. and gave them the names. And then whenever I get a new book, I just rename the art files. I rename the lettering files and I rename like all the lettering templates And then I go in, update all the links Mm -hmm. between the lettering files and the art files, and I'm good to go. All I need is a script, and I set up the script, and I paste it in, and then I get the lettering done. So a lot of things are just setting up actions to do things that are take two seconds to do and make it one second to do. So it seems like incremental, but setting up the actions has really helped me out. I Mm -hmm. ended up using this control pad called Genovation. Oh, okay. It's yeah. like a keypad. Like it's a keypad with some extra keys. Mm-hmm. My partner bought me this as a Christmas gift, mm-hmm. and it's a very simple thing. But I set up all the keys and I programmed them into my computer to perform certain actions on Illustrator. Mm-hmm. So I just tap on the keys. It does the action. It sets up the text a certain way. It places the art a certain way. It separates out the script a certain way. It's just it helps me do my work a lot faster. And another program is called Eldato. It's uh, for streaming deck. A lot of Twitch users use it. It's just like a, a hotkey kind of process where you press a button and it does a thing. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is set up the hotkeys. So that was really simple for me to do since I already set it up for the keypad. And I just, mm-hmm. I can use that too. So I have a backup in case my machine breaks. I can use an app on my phone instead. Nice. So it's just to boil it all down. It's basically taking all of the things that take a few minutes to do and making it a a lot like a second to do like a press of a button and that makes my process a lot faster also is just experience building up on itself Mm -hmm. I'm getting a better eye for placement I'm getting a better eye for design slowly through trial and error and when I get feedback from people on each book I work on that makes me a better letter every step of the way it makes me understand it's like okay the proofreaders expect this from me writers expect this from me for this particular book they want this style I can work with that I can grow from that I'll understand all the different quirks and aspects to a book that it makes me faster to get it done. So a book like Demon Days actually goes by really fast because I know what the expectations are. 
and I know how to deliver them really quickly. And the script actually isn't that demanding. I think the trickiest thing we did in the latest issue of Demon Days is on page two, mm -hmm. where there is a haiku that's incorporated in where um, the main character, one of the main characters says a haiku. Ichimonko wanted the Japanese version of the haiku to be incorporated into the dialogue as well. Okay. So coming up with a style to incorporate both the English and the Japanese and making the Japanese dialogue look cool was tricky. <laughs> yeah. But it was fun. Once you've sent it off for the final time, is that the end of your process with the work or is there more for if it gets rebound into a volume or is it just once it's published, it's published? Usually once it's published, it's published. There's not that often when something comes back and needs a quick change. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very rare part of the process, and that's been the same throughout my career, not just with Marvel or DC. Mm -hmm. Usually once the book is done and set and off to the publisher, that's the last I see of it. And that's fine because I can always move on to the next book that I'll work on. It makes it that much easier for me to transition from project to project to project since it's such a fast-paced thing. Though sometimes when I finish a book and I send it off I'm like ah oh, dang I don't get to work on these characters again. <laughs> like I'm enjoying the heck out of demon days but once we do the final issue of this project I'm gonna be a mess <laughs> what's the timeline like for you on each book from start to finish yeah and like from I, stage to stage I would say overall a week mm -hmm. like I'll get everything about a week ahead beforehand and I'll probably have it out after, at the end of the week like the final pages and stuff mm -hmm. I'd give it about a week a week and a half depending the pages itself if it's a short story like I've done a lot of short stories for DC lately those can take a day mm -hmm. it'll be like maybe eight to ten pages I do a punchline backup for the Joker series and that that I can do in an evening okay. if it's a 20 pages usually takes a day if I rush or two days to get all the lettering done uh, if it's 30 pages, it's it's at minimal two days at times because it's not just a matter of getting one book done. Mm -hmm. I'm getting one book done, and then there's five other books that are getting done in different parts of the stages. Gotcha. So it's when someone sends me a book and they expect it to be done the next day, the expectation is that I'd have no other projects on my plate. Unfortunately, I do. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I'll get sent a book. I'll give them a realistic expectation of when to expect the book. Sometimes when they send me a script like a week and a, and a half ahead of time, that's great. But at that time, I'm working on five other titles mm -hmm. and three of them have to go out that week. So I'll tell them, hey, I'll get it done over the weekend and I'll send it to you on Monday. Mm -hmm. Usually my weekends usually fall on Wednesday and Thursday. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. It's a matter of trying to juggle my schedule, have realistic expectations of when I can finish things, and then and then tell them. And then most of the time I'll have editors he hear me out and be like, okay, we'll expect it on Monday, and then we go from there. And once I finish the initial draft, it gets a lot easier because that's the most time-consuming part of the process that's done. After that is revisions, which can take one to five hours depending of, of like how heavy the revisions are how heavy the script is like how much changes i have to implement then is the second proofing which is a lot easier it's just mostly just running through things and making sure there's anything we missed and then if there's any third or fourth proofing any feedback any back and forth on any details we'll get through that but it doesn't take as much time out of my day 
So 20 page issue would take, if everyone was like suddenly on point and everything got done, or if I just took all my hours and summed them up all together, would probably take 48 hours. Just about. Do you have any particular way that you go about structuring your day when you're working on so many projects? I structure my day, my work days, like the weekdays I structure on Marvel time. I want to be available for the editors during their hours that they're open, which means like 7 a.m. for me is when I start my day. Mm -hmm. I usually work until 3 or 4 in the afternoon, and then I take a break to run any errands for the day. And then I usually find myself coming back around six or seven to work again. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of tend to work until bedtime. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm working most of the day. On less pressurized days, like weekends, mm -hmm. I have a lot more leeway to rearrange my schedule however I want, where I may work a few hours or not at all, or I'm working all day. But since it's a weekend, no one's contacting me from any publisher. They're all taking their weekend off. So I can just focus and get as much work as I want done then. Usually I get a bulk of my work done on the weekends because no one's talking to me. Yes. And then during my week, it's a lot easier. And even though I'm saying I'm starting my workday at seven, I do have a lot of freedom to structure things as I go, depending on how big the workload is during the day. Mm -hmm. It was very strange for me starting off at Marvel. The first time I had like a dentist appointment, I went to my boss and it's like, oh, I'm going to be leaving an hour from work today to go do this thing. And he's like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> Like, am, aren't I supposed to like tell everyone when I'm having a break or whatever and he's like no <laughs> does anyone need you for anything it's like no it's like then don't worry about it I'm like what are you talking about because I used to work at Nintendo yeah. and Nintendo was nice but it was definitely a company so if I had to leave early for a day I'd have to file the right form and talk to the right manager and make sure I get approval to do the thing mm -hmm. and here I am it's like oh I can get up. I can have a bad morning. <laughs> I can recover from a bad morning and have a really, you know, productive afternoon. Um, there's a lot of freedom there with making comics and I appreciate it. It's just, it's not for everyone. <laughs> and I'm not discouraging people from doing it. I'm just saying it's like, it's okay for it if it turns out it's not to be for you. It's just, it's a very particular structure. Like I recently got diagnosed with ADHD because suddenly having a structure that's all my own, especially during a pandemic, Oh boy, anxiety yeah. through the roof. <laughs> Very similar for me as well. I used to yeah. have focus and now I don't and I don't know what happened. Well, it was interesting. I saw a post on Twitter like not too long ago that really brought it into clarity for me. Definitely not self-diagnosis or anything like that. But someone was saying it's like, oh, why does why do all these comic creators are suddenly being diagnosed with ADHD? And someone responds is like, well, if you think about it, a lot of people who get into comics get hyper focused on comics to the point that they're making comics. It's an element of ADHD. Mm -hmm. But then it's also a product where when you were freelancing and you have a structure that's all your own, it can be a lot trickier to handle that. And you find yourself going to, you know, get help and finding out that like, oh, hey, you have some issues with attention. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, all that makes sense. It all just kind of comes right back together again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What would you say for those people who are hyper-focusing on comics? You know, how do you develop your lettering skills? Where does one start? Oh, geez, there's a lot of avenues now, a lot mm -hmm. more than when I started, and that's great. 
but I'll give the ones that from when I started. I was just doing it casually for myself as a hobby at first. I went on to, there's a few different websites. One was Balloon Tales was an old forum with some old articles, really outdated, but it was a part of Comic Craft and you could find some old mm-hmm. tips and tricks there. Another one is Blambot mm-hmm. and Blambot has a ton of articles on how to's, tips, some general agreements on good grammar in comics lettering that's particular for comics lettering as opposed to other mediums mm-hmm. and you can find that on the Blambot website under articles the main one is this blog by Jim Campbell mm-hmm. Jim Campbell is a letterer he's been in the game for a good while by now mm-hmm. and he composed a blog of each step of the lettering process mm-hmm. if you go to Jim Campbell's lettering blog and you look on the side panel it has a step by step by step on each part of the process from breaking down the script mm-hmm. to making the sound effects and exporting the files. And that's basically what I used as my structure, mm-hmm. as my baseline when I started lettering. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things I do differently than how he teaches it now. Yeah. When I started out, it was just the baseline I needed to start learning. There's still a lot of gaps in my education that I had to learn through trial and error. But now I'm happy to say there's actually like some books available. <laughs> really? There's some older books available. There's the Comic Craft Guide to Lettering, which came out ages ago, but it's a very thin book and it's not so much about lettering as it is a kind of a showcase of really great comic craft use of fonts and stuff. So it's, it's a combo of things. It didn't really teach me too much, but it did inspire me a lot reading that book. Mm-hmm. Another one is Todd Klein's DC Guide to Lettering. It's actually called DC's Guide to Lettering and Coloring mm-hmm. or something like that. But Todd Klein, who is very famous for having lettered Sandman and other major books, he pretty much gives a breakdown of how to letter step by step. And it's a very informative book, but it also is a bit dated because it mentions stuff like Quark Express, which we don't use anymore, and other elements that that aren't as relevant to modern digital letter. But now in, I think it's October, there's this book coming out this this fall winter that I'm mm-hmm. super, super excited about. It's like a big, big deal. <laughs> and it's Lambot's Guide to Lettering. So oh, wow. Nate Pecos is finally like putting all of his knowledge together and putting out his Guide to Lettering digital comics, which at this point, I think I know what I'm doing. So I don't need a book like that. And I don't care. I still want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're like, uh, I'm outstanding in my field, but I still want to read what other outstanding people in my field are doing. <laughs> because each letter does something different, mm-hmm. and it's all fine as long as the book looks the way you want it to in print. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of different techniques that we often discuss because like letterers talk to each other often about techniques and different ideas and tips and tricks. We try to help each other out. And this is finally kind of a compilation of knowledge from one of the best in the industry, if not the because here's a wild thing about like I was mentioning Eisner's and stuff here's a wild thing about the Eisner's I think if any digital letterer in a professional field finally won an Eisner the first person who should win it would should most likely be someone like Nate Pagos and the reason why is it's if you're an artist and as an artist there are a limited amount of paints at your disposal Mm -hmm. but all of those paints that like the majority of them were created by someone who is also an artist because he basically creates the palette of a lot of the a lot of the fonts that we work with, mm-hmm. just as Comic Craft and Richard Starkings does does that as well. And it's it's pretty intimidating to work alongside someone who creates the stuff that you use to letter your books. 
because the books that you letter, the amazing font that you use is in part thanks to the design skills of hemp. It's pretty, oh. it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, how do you, how do you stand next to giants? Exactly. Yeah. You know, but like, he's still a cool person to talk to. Yeah, I'm sure. Pictures of his cat. <laughs> make everything better oh my god <laughs> yeah i'm very excited for this book so anyone who's learning lettering anyone who's excited about comics any writer who never wants to letter but wants to write better scripts for letters any artist who doesn't want to letter and hates lettering but wants to understand the process and also have a better eye for how to accommodate for lettering in a comic book all of these things you can find in a book like that and seeing the preview pages, I'm so excited. It's going to be it's going to be so good. <laughs> well, that's kind of a perfect segue. Can you talk a little bit more about Letterer Appreciation Day and what it means to you? Um, it means a lot to me. I mean, it's definitely a celebration of Gasper's birthday as well. Although it also turns out it's Travis's birthday, so it's another letter <laughs> to respect. But it just it's a nice little day where we get some notice for our work, where, pe where a lot of people can stop and think it's like, oh, wait, that comic I really enjoy. The reason, one reason that I enjoy it is because I can read it well. <laughs> but it doesn't confuse me when I read it. Mm -hmm. And and you don't have people going around calling it an invisible art for a day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, like, yes. there's a difference between something being subtle and something being invisible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We, we, we are not often, I mean... There are books where I do get cover credit, mm -hmm. but often that often is not the case anymore. And it's fine not to get cover credit. It's not like I need fame. I'm getting the respect I need from the people I'm working with, and that's fine. It's much more a case of without cover credit, we often get overlooked. And we often are seen as just someone who is part of the company that's putting the book together. Mm -hmm. And as much as, and I respect production, but there's a difference between a production team that is a part of the company, is employed by the company, and someone who is freelanced to the company. Right. And I feel like everyone who is freelancing to a project mm -hmm. or part of a creative team that is collectively putting the project together as an independent book, I believe everyone from the writer to the editor, if there's going to be cover credit, like put them all in because they all are a part of this process and they are all freelancers. Mm -hmm. They're all contracted to work on this. They're not a part, they're not representing the company, they're representing themselves. But one of the big sticking points, and I think part of the biggest problem isn't so much getting cover credit. Mm -hmm. It's much more that diamond previews, and other outlets don't include the letter. Mm -hmm. So you'll, you're going to have someone talk about a book and they'll go only as far as the colorist because they see, oh, the letter isn't credited, then I don't have to mention them. I don't have to talk about them. Mm -hmm. There are times where they'll get previews, especially for an indie book, where the credits and the, that pre-press material isn't included. Mm -hmm. And they're not even going to know who the letterer is because their name's not on the cover promo. And, and a lot of times you have to do the hustle yourself. Yeah. And that can be really difficult. So Letter Appreciation Day is a great day when other people help you do that hustle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a day where other people can talk about what they like. And you can show off your work and you can show off the work of others and be like, hey, there's a lot of great people out here that 
want to make comics with you. So for me, I admit, I don't have to really hustle right now. Not mm-hmm. at this point in my career. I have enough projects. My plate is full. <laughs> However, I do love finding out about other letters in the business and the kind of work that they're putting out. Because when someone comes to me and say, hey, I want you to work on my book. And I'm like, no, I'm internally screaming because there's too much on my plate. I don't have to just say, no, go away. Mm-hmm. I can say, no, let me recommend some people to you. You know, mm-hmm. let me let me give you this list. I try to determine why they want me specifically mm-hmm. and tailor to that. There's certain letters who letter in my style. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I admit they're hiring me because I'm a girl or yeah. because or because I'm queer. Mm-hmm. It can be or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> like that's. I've learned to be like, no, wait, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes they just want to have stories where the whole team is part of that group. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but if they're looking for that person, I want to find someone that matches with them. So I'll recommend mm-hmm. queer creators, I'll recommend women creators, or if they just want creators in general, I have a long list of creators in general who are all letters who work in specific fields that they're really good at. Mm-hmm. And or our general all pur- purpose, you know, jack of all trades and can handle like a lot of specific situations. So I try to get a good idea of what my fellow letters are doing. Mm-hmm. I try hard to um, promote their wins mm-hmm. because I feel like if I recommend anyone, if they want to network in comics, celebrate each other's wins. Mm-hmm. It it does like help bolster positive feeling. And it's also a genuine thing when you see other people succeed, it drives you to succeed. But it's also people remember. People remember when you're on their side. People remember mm-hmm. when they're cheering for you. And there's also a drive to want to work with the people who are cheering for them instead of just you know people who ignore them mm-hmm. like it's hard to hustle for yourself out there so when other people help you out it you remember that and it's it's an appreciation that you can give back to so it's it's better than trying to hit the convention floor and giving your business card out to people because instead it's it's like no one's going to remember you for your business card but they are going to remember for you retweeting them when they were really trying to promote their kickstarter or you know cheering for them when when they finally got their first issue published uh, or giving it advice at the right time or right place. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my career is built around the promotion I've done for myself through Twitter. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my networking is done by celebrating all the people's wins that I've met on Twitter. And and that's probably my best recommendation for people. Make yourself accessible mm-hmm. and celebrate each other. And you'll get a lot of wins that way. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. As we start to have a world where we are allowing for more differences in visual accessibility, do you feel like lettering may have to change to accommodate for larger fonts bigger page size what what people may need to continue to enjoy the form of comics i've thought about this a lot Mm -hmm. it's it's a multi-layered thing Mm -hmm. and there's some hope in some areas and not so much hope in others Mm -hmm. accessibility especially for younger readers is definitely something that is a huge topic of conversation and is definitely being pushed forward you're going to have Scholastic is a major publisher. They're pushing a lot of books for kids and they have a specific vision that they, you know, I'm sure they have consultants. I'm sure they have 
feedback. I'm sure they have educators that are like, okay, kids are going to be reading graphic novels. What kind of graphic novels do they want to read? And how accessible is it for them and their needs? Mm -hmm. And that's when they start thinking, it's like, okay, what kind of fonts do we use? What kind of, like, they think a lot about variation of line. Mm. So there's a lot more slightly organic mixed case fonts that are in favor for use in lettering now for uh, young adults. Mm-hmm. And that's becoming more and more the trend is to do mixed case. That helps, especially with, I, I supposedly, this is my assumption that it helps with dyslexic readers. Mm-hmm. As a letterer on my own, I try to be careful in how I use color in font and color in balloons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the choice is out of my hands because that's the style of a book. And that's decided by the company. But when I'm on my own and deciding, I try to make sure there's clear contrast and it accommodates for people with colorblindness. Mm-hmm. And so there are areas where we are thinking about this and we're trying to make it work. There's other areas where I don't think there'll be changes mm-hmm. and not anytime soon, just because it's not given a lot of consideration. They're not giving as much thought to accessibility as they are just for generally putting books out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, if there's going to be a lot of gathering information, purchasing, you know, the services of people who will research into this and get deeper feedback on this to build it up. And there's a lot of titles that just will just be like, no, this is how they want to do it. So this is mm-hmm. how it's done. And sometimes it means working with smaller fonts and things that I personally may think it's like, this might be a little bit too tiny. This might be a little bit harder for certain people to read. And with my attention, like coming and going from time to time, sometimes it looks like a big word soup to me as well. But it's still a matter of having to work with what the company tells me to do. Mm-hmm. And But when I'm left to my own devices, I'm given a lot more freedom to think of like, okay, this is an all cap style what kind of variation of line can I do that makes it clearer, makes it read better? How do I adjust the leading and, and kerning so that it's spaced enough and well enough that it doesn't the design doesn't look bad, but it looks accessible to readers? So it is something that I think about a lot, and I don't get direct feedback, so I never know if I'm hitting the right tone or the right approach for readers, mm-hmm. especially for young readers. But I'm hoping for the best. Um, I want there to be more communication on it, but it's only going to work with, you know, depends on the project. Also, personally, I would really like it if comics publishers in general worked more with partnerships and podcasts. Mm. Like, I mean, not access for podcasts kind of podcasts, but I mean like radio drama kind of podcast. Yeah. Although if we could convince access for podcasts to do radio dramas of, of I mean, Marvel, we're ready. We're right there. We'll do because it. Because I feel like there's a lot of visually impaired um, readers, you know, who would really want to get into these series. And, like, it's wild to me that we have Daredevil and we don't have an audio version of it every week. I would love that. I would I love an audio drama that falls along with Daredevil. I believe Daredevil was one of the first Netflix shows to have the audio scene descriptors added to it. Which is smart. For the visually impaired. Yeah. yeah it's smart. Mm-hmm. It's just, it makes a lot of sense. I think that kind of accessibility needs to be considered more. Not just for visually impaired viewers. There's just a lot of people where it benefits them. I mean, I I admit I most of the time I'm only reading comic books that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I don't really have enough time to to read comics that I'm not working on because I'm working so often. But I do have time to listen to stuff. So I'm listening to like X's for podcasts, especially when it's books I've worked on because I want to see how you guys you know like it or not. Um, there's Cerebrocast that I listen to a lot. 
man, I, I use the crap out of Audible. And mm -hmm. I just have that playing in the background while I'm working because mm -hmm. my mind can be split in two in a bit for this kind of work that I do. Because the design work and the part where I'm thinking specific things can be pretty separate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. It, While I draw, I listen to all my true crime podcasts. But the moment yep. I have to the moment I have to type something up, I'm like, I have to turn it off because that's the same part of my brain. It doesn't work yeah. out. <laughs> as soon as I get to an email, I'm like, okay, silence. I have to think about this part. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Ariana, thank you so much for joining us. Is there any part of your process that we didn't get to touch on that you'd love to elucidate for our dear listeners? If anyone who listens to this is interested in lettering and want to like have a better grasp of it or they want to learn it for themselves if they have twitter they can just dm me mm -hmm. or if they only email they can find my portfolio through twitter and just like message me because i like to talk to people about lettering and there's a lot of people when they are they have the gumption to like reach out and talk to me they have genuinely interesting questions to ask so like don't feel alone in this especially in this industry mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of people are living all separate with their separate lives and separate cities and stuff but you know you can just reach out to people and talk to them if you really have questions i don't often get questions like specifically publicly on twitter but i would love that because then i can answer it and other people can know about it and i love talking about lettering so you know not so much of what my process we missed like there's I mean, I, I think we went a little bit too in depth in my process where some of it doesn't make any sense. If anyone ever has questions, like they see I did something and was like, how did you do that? I can answer it. I mean, it's a nice little break to, you know, talk about what I do as opposed to having to slack through it sometimes. <laughs> Can you give us your Twitter handles, where we can find you, and uh, uh, tell yeah. people what to pick up? Yeah. My portfolio is arianamar.com. My Twitter is commentary, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-I-R-Y, on Twitter. And th those are the two ways you can contact me. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And so people should be picking up Demon Days, of course. I highly recommend it. It's, it's a gorgeous one. Not for the faint of heart. If your kid is really into it, but you don't want them to see much gore, fair warning. <laughs> you might want to read this issue first. <laughs> Just, yes, I know. Zach, Zach warned people about this issue coming up as well. I mean, he's right. She's a horror artist. She mm -hmm. tells horror stories. You better, you better be ready. These are about yokai. Yokai mm -hmm. aren't cute. They're scary. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Please pick up Last Annihilation, Wiccan and Hulkling, because Anthony is an amazing writer. I want his books to sell well so that he can do more Marvel stories with his favorite characters and I can letter more of them. I lettered his Iceman story in the Pride issue for Marvel and it was, damn, I cried at the end. <laughs> I just want to see more of, of their work in the world. So like, yeah, please pick that up. Please check out Hellions if you're any at all interested in X-Men. It's, it's really heating up at this point. Um, every time I get a new issue to work on, I get so excited because it's like, oh my gosh, where, where are they taking us next? So that Hellions is really great. Excalibur has all of my favorite characters and they're doing cool stuff. I'm very excited for that. Mm -hmm. Crush and Lobo. Definitely check out Crush and Lobo, especially if you like punk, goofy, off the wall kind of stuff. I get to do some really wild things in that book and the creative team is amazing so yeah that's some cool stuff to check out <laughs> wonderful wonderful well thank you so much again i'm tori you can find me on twitter at tori underscore sheehan and on instagram at sm tori and thanks for joining us here on x's for podcast
Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. Now, we love Shang-Chi on this show. It's not just an exciting time for him with his movie coming out today. Hey, there's some cross-synergy. But we've really been enjoying his ongoing comic adventures lately. He had a previous five-issue series, followed by this one-shot. Now, there's the current series and the Marvel Voices appearance. So, we wanted to sit down and talk about an incredible issue written by another amazing female creator in comics that spotlights some of the most amazing things about the kind of 70s throwback style that gave birth to Shang-Chi in the first place, plus the Lady Deathstrike appearance and some taut action. There was no way we could skip this story. So myself, Nathan, and Jonah, we just wanted to celebrate Shang-Chi coming out in film, and there was no better way to do it than with this issue. Guys, as always, we love making this show for you twice a week, every week. So guys, until next time, keep those Krakoan gateways open, those mutant lights lit, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter and Instagram at DazzlerAOA, where I'm just being weird and random. Yeah, fun. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Just like Lady Deathstrike did in her fight against Shang-Chi, and she was able to make away with a part of the blade. Yeah, okay. I loved this. I loved both things we're going to talk about today. It's a big old Shang-Chi party, because, you know, we started covering more and more on this network, and we have a private Discord that we like to hang out on. And Rod was like, I hope y'all are reading Shang-Chi. And I was like, you know what? I picked up some of it. I need to get the rest of it. I need to finish catching up. And, you know, it's been such a great time kind of coming back to this character, uh, rejoining with my kind of 70s kung fu Marvel heritage that kind of built my fandom, whether it's Daredevil or it's Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. You know, those titles really helped define my fandom for years. So it's so exciting getting to come back to them. And it's even better getting to come back to them with fresh eyes. And I don't mean mine. I, of course, mean my amazing co-panelists today as we talk about The Legend of Shang-Chi by Alyssa Wong, Andy Tong, Rochelle Rosenberg, and VC's Travis Lanham from February of this year, as well as discussing What Is versus What If from the Marvel Voices Identity one-shot that was released earlier in August. Now that of course has the incredible team from the Shang-Chi current miniseries or possibly ongoing. Marvel's being a little cagey about it. But that's Gene Long Yang, Marcus Tu, Sunny Go, and VC's Joe Sabino. Now okay, we've all talked a little bit of Shang-Chi. We could talk more. We're going to talk a ton about it. But I think the thing I'm most excited to talk about here is this one shot was so perfectly designed in so many ways to get new people in. Now, Jonah, I don't believe you've read the previous Shang-Chi miniseries, so you might not have been as familiar with Liko. That is correct. I had no idea who this woman was. Now, how did you feel about being introduced to the only non-super like major represented character like Lady Deathstrike whether or not you know you know Yuriko very well from the comics or perhaps you're a little bit more familiar with Kelly Hu's performance from X-Men 2 right at least you culturally recognize you know Lady Deathstrike how did it feel jumping into this story being given one namesake character and two women for support 
that's actually a really interesting point you bring up because I didn't think about that until now. But this book literally really only has three characters: Shang Chi, Liko, and Lady Deathstrike, and bleeding security guard number two. Listen, my favorite I, was number absolutely. three. He did not phone that performance in. No, he, he gave not. it his all. And honestly, if I was bleeding security number three, oh, best believe I would have gotten it for best background character. <laughs> that performance was so not phoned in he used all of his roaming minutes <laughs> much better than the yawning security guard number one like that was. <laughs> it was so not phoned in his family couldn't get on the internet the performance was so grounded i could feel the strain of gravity <laughs> on his emotions lost is it in this book we have to go back <laughs> we have to go back that's back to the future um jesus <laughs> christ it's lost <laughs> <laughs> gotta go back to the island this title was really good um, <laughs> because it was just a lot of fun there really wasn't much to this it was your very basic classic uh yeah classic for for a comic which is you're introduced to our hero you're introduced to someone who is supporting him in his cause and or a friend he is given his mission he goes on his mission he fights the bad guy it looks super cool there's a bunch of action and then the super and then the good guy wins or so we thought and we're left on that cliffhanger well, I mean, he's he still yeah. won i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fight you too hard on but he he's definitely won it's just she didn't also lose as much as we would have hoped. So, well, but do we really hope for her to lose? Like, I love Deathstrike. I kind of no, want her to win. Okay. I I just kind of want her to get her own body back. Like, I'm fine with uh, yeah. Rico's body, but like, if she could just get back in her own body, please. Yeah, there's a. I guess that that's happened to what two Asian women in Marvel Comics associated with the X Men with body swaps. Yeah. Listen, uh, if I had a nickel for every time, it'd only be two, but uh, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice. <laughs> but it could ferry you to hell. <gasps> One on oh, each eye. River sticks. Why isn't there a mutant called sticks? We can talk about that later. Anyway, more important. Oh my god! I just realized that sticks had come sail away. Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow i love that we're talking about anything but this <laughs> title this when we loved it which is <laughs> i do i love it when we loved it which is what's crazy i think it's because it's not the most complex in story there isn't a lot of maybe hidden nuances in what's going on but i like the very clear-cut distinction of who these characters are and they're just in this situation and this is how they would react to this situation i think that's pretty neat yeah i mean i thought the cleanness of the story and the execution of the idea was pretty pretty on brand and you know nathan i was so excited to get to cover this with you this is one of those like surprise pleasures i've enjoyed so much coming to share a view of the marvel universe we have such disparate experiences coming into marvel and unlike a lot of people on this show we've never shared a location boundary whereas a number of the hosts and i even if unbeknownst kind of grew up near each other so we have a lot of like matched fandom but you and i have a uniquely matched fandom for our such different experiences and when i was reading this number one it has all the hallmarks of 70s high camp which is like if you were a teenager and you had to pick what to do with your summer you would go to 70s high camp you know what oh, I mean? Yeah, sign me so up. So I really fucking higher the wig, the closer to God. And like, so that this issue had so much camp for you was something I was really excited about. But then there was three layers that I thought were really significant to what felt like Alyssa Wong channeling a 1970s classic Claremont setup. 
number one, we had the surprise villain from another discipline. Getting Lady Deathstrike added a sense of, ahaha, aren't you glad you picked this mag up? <laughs> right? Yep. Number two, I love the Equinox Blade. Oh my god, I could sell six Black Knights for an Equinox Blade, motherfucker! Ah. <laughs> and the idea that there is just this other magical artifact floating around is a very <laughs> 70s thing, right? Now, Ghost voice rocks, okay. But anyway, Thank sorry. you so much. I actually <laughs> felt really good channeling it. <laughs> Now, the other thing that I thought was so 70s to the point where it shocked me was the pacing. And there's a specific element of the pacing that only you could really answer for me the way I, I'm interested in, right? Now, I loved that this issue was a well-balanced, well-told tale featuring three Asian characters, two of whom were women, none of whom played into offensive stereotypical roles. But in an effort to break free of those stereotypical roles, in some ways, I feel like the characters might have left themselves behind. I noticed that Lady Deathstrike didn't channel her claws till more than halfway through the issue. Now, by digital page count, of course, the cover being page one, Yuriko doesn't appear until page eight, and she doesn't unsheathe her claws until page 14, and the issue closes out on page 23. So it's almost as though they delayed the reveal of Lady Deathstrike's claws, almost like it was going to be a classic 70s reveal that the spy under the mask was Yuriko all along. But here, there was no such reveal. So those are sort of my three questions for you. You know, this camp factor being so high, the seamlessness of the creating an idea, or perhaps I'm under-informed and the Equinox Blade is a classic idea, but the reintroduction then, at least, if not the outright creation, of a new artifact, and the unusual sense of balance during pacing. How did you feel about what really, for me, played out as a 70s Claremont book? Absolutely everything you said I agree with. I'm sorry, I need, I'm so sorry that I'm asking you to annotate your answer. I just, like, I have so many notes for you. So, one, like, the thing that did strike me the most was the the pacing is so beautifully done it's a high energy romp but there's still the emotional stakes it's one of those one issue like you said very claremont things where you get some emotional depth you get some action you get some excitement it's got everything there so i i love that i did love like you said the the villain being from an x-men line you know that's usually what death strikes from mainly associated with wolverine it very so claremont 70s it's like when colleen wing showed up in the x-men and was like jean gray's like your roommate or was that misty knight i forget one of them misty knight was her roommate but then scott dated scott dated colleen wing when they get back with her that's Scott what it was. Colleen, like legitimately, it, it Scott dating Colleen keeps me pan. Like, yeah. Whenever I'm like, am I into late Colleen Wing? Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I, Misty Knight does it for me, so like, I'm like, oh, oh, oh. like Misty Knight and Cable. <laughs> so you were saying, yes, it reminded me of when Misty Knight was Jean Grey's roommate back in the '70s. Just so random, and it's like obviously Claremont was writing power man iron fist at the same time and he brought those characters over because he loved them that's how carol danvers ended up over in the x-men too you know it's he, it was something he did but it just seems so awesomely 70s like claremontian camp 
I do love also how like everything like I I just found out the story existed and I'm so mad that I just found out the story existed. Everybody who likes a really good fun romp needs to go out buy it read it right away. It's quick read but you will learn so much about Chong Chi and got Lady Deathstrike in it too. <sighs> now I love that you said something that like. It's like you know exactly how to hit my Nicopedia button because <laughs> you brought up that people might not realize that Lady Deathstrike is mostly known for her involvement with the X-Men. Now, many yep. people believe that Lady Deathstrike first appeared on the scene in Uncanny 205, the famous Barry Windsor Smith issue. Now, I haven't made this joke in about 200 episodes, so I feel like I get to make it again. <laughs> but I one time commented to one of my friends that, God damn... I wish I could draw anything in my entire life as good as Barry Windsor Smith drew Life, Death, and Life, Death Part 2. And my friend looked me right in the fucking eyes. This was over the internet. He looked me right in the fucking <laughs> eyes, and he said, you know what? When you only release one book a year, yeah, you can make Ooh. it real pretty. And I was changed, but so... Even that, even that X-Men issue that people first think Deathstrike appeared, and that's when she got her current look, or her, not current look, but her most associated look, right? The, you know, yeah. the highly cybernetic look. I was mistakenly thought that she first appeared in that Alpha Flight, but no, she appeared where did she appear, Nico? She appeared over in My Sweet Boy Daredevil, that's right, she appeared in the Land of Catholic Guilt, while the Land of Catholic Guilt was temporarily hightailing it over to Japan, because none other than Bullseye was out to get himself an adamantium skeleton, which can obviously only be done in Canada or Japan. <laughs> in this case, I'm just glad it's not Japanada. So Japanada, I, oh no, Marvel would do I, that. Logan is just moving there. I'm like, Japandrador? Because like, I feel like we gotta get Madripoor in there. If we can, <laughs> It's like it's Logan's own personal secret world's battle world, you know, but I need this now. <laughs> I desperately need this book. But that's so that's even the point. Deathstrike first appears as Yoriko in the pages of Daredevil over in Daredevil 197 to 199. She would then not appear for three years until she would resurface in the pages of Alpha Flight, Alpha Flight 33 and 34. She would appear that same month over in the pages of Uncanny X-Men by Chris Claremont and Barry Windsor Smith. She would then not appear again for three and a half goddamned years before resurfacing over in the pages of Uncanny X-Men 247, where she would have a startling run through 255 before disappearing till the 260s. From there, she would have a spotty set of appearances for the next number of years. It wouldn't be until the death of Wolverine, which would place her in the ongoing title Wolverines, where she would make 20 consecutive appearances, where her number of appearances would really ramp up. As a matter of fact, interesting little appearance stat here for you guys. Lady Deathstrike has had about 160 appearances to date, and 80 of them have been since 2012. Holy fuck, she's like Jane Foster. <sighs> it is one of those cases where the cultural identity of the character so supersedes the reality of their number of appearances that it retroactively redefines the character as a more significant contribution to the shape of the universe than they originally were. Now, in the case of Lady Deathstrike, I think that's actually a gift 
the idea that we see her in more and more and more. If there's one thing I wish we had never seen her in, it's probably Extreme X-Men God Loves Man Kills 2, which Ugh. is really... That didn't just, exist. That didn't exist. You know, that's that thing where Claremont says that's why we never did a sequel to it, and I believe he means that's why he never did a second Marvel graphic novel, but I like to pretend he means that's why we never did God Loves Man Kills Part 2. And back to the story at hand... Uh, 70s pacing, right? So how did you feel right. about the idea that, you know, when we recognize Logan, we have three main ways that we recognize Logan through. Number one, we have the claws, which is so iconographically unforgettable. We have the hair, mm-hmm. right? Which is sort of that kind of mantelpiece that we can associate him with. And then we sort of have the look, that sort of tough guy look, the the biker jacket, or the motorcycle jacket, depending if you go with the Hugh Jackman version, or if you go with perhaps the Frank Miller or the John Romita June kind of, you know, visage. So the only way people really recognize Lady Deathstrike is number one, through her unfortunate tan headpiece, or... Hey, you leave that headpiece alone, it's amazing. I mean, it's beautiful, it's just unfortunately the color that you paint a room before you finally paint the room you know what i mean (laughs) she's in the color of wallpaper paste and that is really not fair to anybody most notably yuriko who deserves to look fabulous as she's slaughtering so i find myself shocked that Alyssa wong who i can't get over how good i thought this whole book was like i legitimately i'm like give this woman 80 titles yeah, I kind of felt perhaps her death strike by virtue of not unsheathing her claws sooner, maybe read a little bit like almost a facsimile edition. And then I was a little confused by her. I could get used to this kind of power. I personally feel as though Lady Deathstrike has had a lot of power in her lifetime. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, like canon nickel and dime somebody. I don't think that's attractive. And I'm certainly not intending to do it to a woman who wrote an issue that is just shines. It's a fucking... It's a fucking four and a half, if not five star knockout for me. I just really wonder, and I even would have had the question for Claremont in 1978. You know what I mean? I would have said to him, but why page 14? Why page 14 for the clause? Why? Because, you know, Jonah, I am shocked to say this, but this might be the first time I'm really realizing this. Lady Deathstrike's not a fucking mute, so she never got the Krakoan amnesty. No, she don't got that X gene, and you don't got that X gene. You can't go through that gate, and you don't get to become a hero now. So, I mean, Nathan, is this her first appearance in Hawkspox? I am thinking it is, because, yeah, the last time I really remember her making a, a really strong run was in Weapon X, and wow, that was, yeah, I think so. You know, so. I just did a little bit of research while we were talking, and come to think of it, a little bit of research, she appeared for two issues of the breathtaking Gail Simone Domino. She would then appear through a number of the pages of Wolverine's Hunt for Wolverine, specifically appearing in Claws of a Killer. She returned to the pages of Weapon X to close out that series and since then has appeared once in modok head games once in legend of shang chi and once in a not quite as well as i would have liked to have seen it received women of marvel story oh yeah she was in that this really is her only three appearances since february 2019 this is a significant appearance for her then and sort of represents a return to Paige after what seemed like a really significant run for a really dramatic period of time for her to very suddenly be cut short. So, Jonah, this is your first current Lady Deathstrike ever. 
Yeah, um, I'm looking at, like, just her page, just to, like, make sure, like, everything, to learn everything about her, just enough to understand her. My favorite thing I just found out, she has a former base of operation in Cooterman's Creek, Australia. Who came up with the name Cooterman? <laughs> make sure it's not a real place before I put this to air, please. Hold on, hold on. No, it doesn't look like it's a real place. <laughs> How do you spell <laughs> It's not a real place. It's fake. For those of you who might not be familiar with what Jonah is cackling maniacally over, at one point, <laughs> Lady Mastermind, Jesus Christ, at one point, Lady Deathstrike Death was a member of the, Guys, this has been the podcast that can't shoot straight. Lady Deathstrike had returned to the pages of the X-Men as a villain for Wolverine specifically, as a member of Donald Pierce's Reavers. The Reavers represented a unique set of villains for the X-Men, as they were people who were wronged by Wolverine. They were mostly victims of Logan's from the days that he attacked the Hellfire Club back in X-Men 129 to 137 in the Dark Phoenix saga. So it represented a pretty significant departure from what the X-Men were used to fighting, robots and other mutants, and instead, or, you know, the occasional pterodactyl, and instead represented humans who had purposefully modified themselves after Logan maimed them. It was a powerful moment of realism in an otherwise high fantasy title that sort of grounded back. Wow, it's amazing how much this is bringing us to 70s X-Men. <laughs> that is remarkable. I mean, that's actually like the hallmark of this issue, because that's one of the first things I said. This felt very 70s classic, high energy. It was a really spectacular single issue. Now, I don't know if either of you had a chance to read the previous Shang-Chi series, but it was tremendous Tremendous, and it needed to take five issues to do a lot of what this issue got to benefit from having had done directly before. I think one of the things that was really important was putting Shang-Chi in a heist gave him kind of an exciting edge. And one of the first moments during the heist showed him cared for an injured officer that sort of established his humanity. And I felt that by putting Shang-Chi in a situation where he was in a dynamically roguish role and then having him ultimately perform very much in a Spider-Man kind of way, able to overcome the darkness that wants to hold him down. I think they sort of youthened him with that. They kept him feeling very young. How do you guys feel about Shang-Chi as this the son role? I mean, don't get me wrong. He's always been uh, the son, but this is a dynamically greater emphasis on that than any other part of his characterization. I don't know as much about Shang-Chi. I really wish I did. Obviously, having focused mainly on like the X-Men and Avengers, he doesn't show up as much. And when he does, he's not in as as pure a role. He's more of like the, oh, wow, we need to go see a Kung Fu Master. So let's go see Shang-Chi. The last arc I really read him in was Gail Simone's beautiful domino, right? That keeps getting mentioned too. This story in one issue gave me such a complete understanding of his character whereas in even that beautifully done domino arc which was three issues i really didn't get a really good understanding for the character this story made me want to go out and read more and just like devour everything i can with shang chi in it because i've only really been introduced to shang chi recently i only know about his identity that is currently being thrust upon him which is him leading his 
father's evil organization that's no longer evil and righting the wrongs. So his whole central conflict and a lot of his characterization comes from stemming from undoing his father's teachings and righting the wrongs. So that's how I know him as, and that's the role that is, you know, I don't want to say I'm comfortable with, but it's the role that I was given for him. And it's like, okay, cool, work. I can work with this. So seeing this in him not dealing with that conflict and kind of in a situation where he is, as uh, Liko points out, he's a freelancer and he kind of just does whatever he wants. I'm like, okay, that's still kind of interesting. Kind of just doing your own stuff as a hero and whatever that means. You're kind of just going where you want to go. It makes me think of hashtag just Jonah things. Elsa Bloodstone in the sense that she kind of just does whatever she wants. She goes where she needs to go uh, as long as she has the funds of getting there. Because <laughs> 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 uh, That's my other favorite thing about Elsa is that she's not a rich hero. So she does constantly have to think about, well, how much is my weapons budget this month? Maybe I do have to fly economy. <laughs> oh, God, the poor girl. Yeah, poor girl. I want to know what the fuck economy airline is letting her check several <laughs> rifles. And grenade. Grenade. I like that we both were immediately like, <laughs> she's taking the grenade on the plane. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and it's sort of in that vein that I think there's something kind of interesting about Shang-Chi's character here, right? I like that you mentioned Elsa Bloodstone and specifically that she's sort of bound by funds because something that Shang-Chi is not bound by is funds. One of the reasons I thought having him go on a heist was really clever and fun was because he doesn't need to go on the heist. When Felicia Hardy takes a job, it's usually because, you know, Kitty needs milk. You know, when Peter (laughs) Parker takes a job, it's because, well, Kitty needs milk. So, you know, it's the same sort of thing. But Shang-Chi, they've just established, is a leader of a criminal empire he is working to reform. And it leads me to realize a few things. There was a powerful movement to sort of re-mystic kung fu infuse popular street-level characters at Marvel in the late aughts, early 2010s. And the reason for that was Ed Brubaker and Ed Brubaker's love of these characters and his massive fingerprints all over them, as well as Matt fraction and a number of characters now by turning the iron fist into one of the seven capital cities of heaven and giving us steel serpent and dog brother number two and bride of nine spiders and you know by giving us the immortal weapons and redefining that role we were able to get a glimpse into something that really excited the audience but always felt a bit artificial and then here shang chi does sort of the same idea but with much greater deftness and a much smoother hand. Now, sadly, those characters are missing from this one shot, but it's all over this one shot. It it feels like that Shang-Chi and at the same time, we once in that time period that we saw the prominence and the rise of the immortal weapons saw Daredevil take on the hand in an attempt to reform it as its leader. Now, that was shortly after Brubaker left Daredevil over in the pages of Andy Diggle's Daredevil and Shadowland. So we've sort of seen some of these elements elsewhere in the Marvel Universe before, but this is the first time we've seen them written from one place with a sense of authority and conviction. And I think that's why we keep seeing the struggle between Shang-Chi's goodness inside of him. Something I think that we see all too often in fiction depicting Asian characters is this sort of sense of honor and duty. And when it comes from an 
actual AAIP voice. I love it and I am in and I am here for it. But when I know that the character is actually from a history of predominantly white writers who did not necessarily understand the culture from within, loved it with their best intentions and did everything they could to be respectful at the time. But, you know, now we know a little bit different. I'm very excited to see a new generation able to shape those stories around an Asian character with Asian perspective, not just influence. And I love that we never saw Shang-Chi be like, no, I must do the honorable thing and beat the badness for my honor and the honor of my family and the honor of my house. Like, he didn't go full Klingon. And that was what really kind of moved me. I thought that his sense of right and wrong is he doesn't want to become his dad. He sees how powerful his father was. And so he doesn't want to become that man. There's a real dynamic shift in being willing to redefine the paradigm and scope that has centralized a character and character type for so long in so many ways. Now, that was something I had heard that, you know, the room that discussed Marvel Voices identity had discussed extensively. Now, I believe that was both of you as well. Now, we had talked a little bit about the incredible what is versus what if story over in the pages of identity. But, you know, I didn't have a chance to. And I am so fucking excited <laughs> because you could almost take the moment where Lady Deathstrike says, give in to the darkness and the blade is pressed into him. And he's sitting silently. You could almost take that moment and insert what is versus what if into that moment as a moment he remembers where he was confronted by the darkness. Now, instead, that story focuses on the Order of Owatu. I could fucking sweep everything off my desk and just like lay naked on my desk rolling around and how much I love that. That's but amazing. It, right? It focuses on the Order of Uatu. And it's about the Rugu coin, which is this powerful thing where you have to face some dark version of yourself. I cannot get over how clever it was that Marvel found a way to, in the same Shang-Chi story, promote what if during what if, where the central narrative of almost every episode of what if seems to be what if a bad guy, what if a good guy was bad, or what if a good guy was just a different kind of good? Those seem to be the two choices on <laughs> on what if stories on what if but so they found a way to combine what if and Shang-Chi in a single story in a way that promotes such brilliant synergy I mean like the cross promotion idea of covering material the day something comes out that just seems brilliant anyone who had the idea to do that absolutely deserves all the success it brings them <laughs> One thing I did love about the story is even though Deathstrike wasn't recognizable at first by using her claws, which she's so visually known for, especially since she doesn't do that, according to Nico, god-awful headdress anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did love that Deathstrike has always been a character who has her own moral code. 
So she didn't pull out the claws at first because I, I think she wanted to make it a more fair fight because she's going up against Shang-Chi thinking, she says it herself, like, I've fought mutants who have healing factors and adamantium blades. What the hell are you going to do against me? So she was just going to use her her street level skills. And it wasn't until she was bested that she brought out her hot claws, but not hot claws like Logan, because that's gross. But Okay, I really like your perspective on it, that you see that there's not a need for her to necessarily... Okay, yeah, I see it. I see it. I see it. It, it paints her in her more methodical mode, mm-hmm. even though she's presented in a more personable form here. But I think that disparity can be explained by recognizing the duality there. I'm with it. I'm in. I love the read. She a complex character. She a complex character. Something that I love that you brought up is talking about honor. Something that I've learned, there's a YouTuber who I really enjoy watching, and she is of Chinese descent and studies Chinese and other Asian histories. Watching her go over things like Mulan, Kung Fu Panda, stuff like that, Avatar The Last Airbender for their accuracies and inaccuracies, one of the things that's always constantly brought up is that honor, the level of significance is over overstated, overstated by Westerners. honor is important in asian societies and cultures but not as much as we in the west like to think it actually is so like that's something i really love that you brought up and like yeah no honor is important but like not as important as we were led to believe it should be no more important than honor is to an american soldier in fiction Mm -hmm. absolutely and i think that's something that you know if we're not holding cap to the same level then it really is sort of a racially motivated depiction in a way that isn't intrinsically honest. And I think that's, I think that's part of what I've been worried about and maybe felt that I wasn't getting from all of these Marvel voices and Marvel special one shots. You know, I specifically commented that I was disappointed that there wasn't a warmer reaction to the Lady Deathstrike women of Marvel story. And that's because it was perhaps not, you know, the best received. And I wanted these specials to all be special. And there was something really interesting that you guys hit on in your coverage that I loved. You guys said that you felt that this special, you know, the name Identity is so vague and kind of garbagey if you know, you're just going by what a lot of these specials have ultimately contained or been about, you know, it's very it's identity. Oh, okay. Um, what does that mean? Like, it's just, it's identity. Like it, but you know what? There really was a sense of identity to this Shang-Chi story. And I felt very much that, that could have been the name of this story in particular. Once again, we were given a story that had very few characters. And I want to stress why that's really significant about the February released The Legend of Shang-Chi and this story. It's so important to keep that in mind because I believe Shang-Chi was originally supposed to be released around when this one shot came out at one point and 
then mm-hmm. you have this story coming out just a month before Shang-Chi comes out as a film. And both stories only feature two to three characters. Both stories feature a mystical item that, much like the Ten Rings, it, it kind of hits back that there's mystical items. It focuses predominantly on Shang-Chi as a singularly motivated character fighting against his own darkness, right? So you're not given... You're not given what we hated about Black Knight, which was Mordred being forced into the story out of nowhere in a really awkward way. But you're also not being given the brave, exciting thing that you got from the previous Shang-Chi arc, which was a host of new characters. And, you know, Jonah, I feel like perhaps the new characters, not that you don't identify with and enjoy the main character, uh, you know, the the Chi Man himself, but I feel like you've specifically stated that you really connected with a few of his siblings so there is something to be said about these two stories that focus so much on just this character versus some sense of his darkness created by a mystical object forcing him to confront the reality of his family in front of other Asian people. Like, there really is a powerful mirror here, but not in a way that I think weakens the efficacy of the story. I think this is a format that you can explore many different ways, and we see it explored similarly, but different enough here that instead of needing to see him fight his darkness in in legend in what is versus what if if we sort of insert that in the panel where he holds the blade it sort of does all the work for us how do you guys feel about the similar natures of these two stories and very likely the from a storytelling perspective purpose they both served but again i think they're both knockouts i don't think there is anything to knock either of them for For somebody who's learning more of shang chi i'm glad i read the identity piece before I read The Legend of Shang-Chi, just because I think the identity piece does a really good job of laying out a lot of his core, but The Legend of Shang-Chi, just probably mainly because of page count itself, does a better job of exploring his character as a person. So I think neither of them maybe is that complete picture that you would want, where you don't know everything, but you don't always need every book to force feed you every fact about a character. So I think with these two issues or two one issue in one segment, I think you really get, I feel I have a more complete understanding of Shang-Chi. Jonah, how do you feel about the parallels between the two stories, the limited number of characters, the focus on a mystical representation of self versus self and an overcoming of darkness? How do you feel about those mirrors? And did they stand out to you? And if so, did they work for you? Something I was thinking about when you asked if this is the issue we can cover. So I'm reading this and then you were like, oh, brush up also on the identity story of Shang-Chi. And I was like, okay, cool work. And then so I'm reading this and I'm like, huh, huh, there are a lot of similarities here. We stand consistency. We stand a humble, tall king who can go through the same <laughs> conflicts <laughs> multiple times. 
<laughs> it's a conflict that I don't know if is often explored enough in whatever which way that they're telling it, whether it's through a magical item to make you confront your darkness, whether it's literally looking at maybe wrongs you have done, maybe it's figuratively looking at potentially the what ifs of looking at people who are in that actual situation, like looking at Shang Chi's siblings. There's a lot to gleam and understand from characters on the alternate paths they could have taken. And I'm somebody, if you know me personally, I fucking love parallel universes. I love the parallel universe theory. And I love that every choice branches off into a new universe where different things happen. So hi, all multiple Jonas. I don't know if you're actually listening to this, but you never know. (laughs) So it's the actual conflicts themselves. I really enjoy because I think it's something that we talked about on the episode that a lot of the identity issues got were relatable, even if you aren't of Asian descent or Pacific Islander, in a sense that you know what they're going through. And even if you're not that exact specific one-to-one experience, you still can relate to what this character is going through, what this character is feeling. And I really appreciated that about this story, not only in Shang-Chi Legends, but also in the Marvel Voices Identity story. The use of the mystical item, I personally do not have a problem with, because just like magical items, I think they're really cool. I think it's part of a D&D background for me, like the more magical items, the better. I don't know if it's fully needed, because truly, I think it's just meant as a conduit for the actual conflict itself, as opposed to playing any actual relevant role, if that makes sense. The magical item itself doesn't matter. You can call it whatever. It's the MacGuffin. It doesn't hold, as far as I'm aware, actual significance. It's a lot more about the conflict it represents. Kind of like what you were saying, Jonah. Like you said too earlier, Nico, just the fact that there's a like a cult of Watu, like, oh my god, like, sign me up. The magical item reminded me a lot of in Star Trek, they have the Bajoran orbs, right? And, you know, the orbs do a whole bunch of wonky stuff, but really when you have an experience with it in a, within the episode, you're getting to see a lot about the character and a lot about who they are, what they are, different choices they could make. So I, I, from a storytelling standpoint, love things that let you do that, that let you see the alternate. That's why, kind of like Jonah, I love alternate reality stories because you get to see your hero if they made a different choice, if they did the different thing, if they didn't get bit by the radioactive spider, if Jean Grey had stayed Phoenix, you know, whatever. And, you know, I, I do love what you guys are saying because... Yeah, I guess. You know, it's very unlikely that this amazing coin is going to come back up as much as I would love it if, you know, because we do know that that is what Shang-Chi is doing. He's trying to gather up mystical artifacts that are too powerful to be out there. It'd be pretty cool if, you know, Doctor Strange could occasionally go to Shang-Chi and be like, I need this thing. And Shang-Chi should be like, yeah, I don't trust you with it. Wait, 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 wait. So he's like the Trinket Hunters in the TV show Friday the 13th? Oh, my God. I loved that show. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. That show was so great. Did you watch it in sci-fi refunds? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was, you know, I'd watch American Gladiators till like noon. And then I'd switch over. (laughs) Yes. So I'm with you a thousand percent. So with the you know coin likely being a nothing and i accept the coin is likely just a nothing i doubt though that the blade is intended to be a nothing thinking about the sort of visual that we get from lady deathstrike 
I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps Alyssa Wong was setting up that Lady Deathstrike could have that blade implanted in her hands. It would give her new energy powers. It would give her, uh, you know, this mystical weapon that Shang-Chi would want to hunt down. It could bring her back into his story. Now, I know that Jean Lin Yang is writing Shang-Chi's ongoing series, which is at least going to get through five issues because maybe it's a miniseries. Maybe it's an ongoing. You kind of never know with Marvel. It's sort of a what is versus what if situation. (laughs) So children of the Adam were looking at you. Oh, are we? Because I'm also looking at it like half the books. Yeah, no, I know. (laughs) I, uh, (laughs) so I really think the strength of both of these stories is also the strength of Shang-Chi right now, which is the kind of limitless potential this character has in a blank slate universe. Number one, they're putting a lot of money behind making this live action character very attractive, very palatable, very high energy, tons of ties to other characters. There's supposed to be several cameos and Easter eggs in the upcoming film. And, you know, it's so significant that Marvel is positioning this character in a place that allows him to interact with a number of other characters. Let's not forget that while Lady Deathstrike showed up in the pages of The Legend of Shang-Chi, over in the pages of What Is versus What If, we saw Spider-Man and Captain America in the form of mental images that help Shang-Chi defeat himself. Well, his bad self. Who Did anybody else notice that his bad guy self looked more like his 1970s self? which is almost like a statement on if the character hadn't been purified he would have been destined to go down the dark road of trope and stereotype based forefathers that had always failed the community but instead by diversifying him away from a less impure place he is able to become the leader that his community has always needed and lead his brothers and sisters into a new age of Asian storytelling Uh, yeah absolutely 100% so like I'm I'm I don't know. I think that other than just being adorable, Shang-Chi is one of the best things that Rod has brought to this show. This, you know, between the previous miniseries, which I expect us to cover in trade waiting, the continuing adventures in the ongoing, I see us continuing on with these titles. Now, I do have to jump back to Legend for one more thing. I need to praise the pacing in one more way. I think while I could have used a little bit more Liko, who was spectacular, and I did impre- I did appreciate her very man-in-the-van role over in the pages of the heist, I loved the symmetry of the two-page opening at the cafe and the single-page closing at the cafe. I thought that that three pages of 22 being dedicated to that sequence was a really beautiful way to illustrate the bookends of reality in kind of an episodic format. This could have made an excellent animated series episode for a limited cast television show of Shang-Chi. And in fact, my one actual knock on the issue would be, I thought the moving through the lasers would have been a lot cooler live action. On paper, it lacked the dynamic chemistry 
of acrobatics, which is no knock on the breathtaking job Andy Tong did, as well as Marcus too, Sonny Go and Rochelle Rosenberg, both of whom really brought out the energy of these fight sequences through their beautiful color work. You know, and not enough can be said for the quality of the letters that the virtual calligraphy team does. Both Travis Lanham and Joe Sabino make appearances every week on our show because of the amount of work they produce. So it really is one of those things where the art does help transcend this story. The fact that Shang-Chi is one of the most attractive comic book characters this side of Bishop is like... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Simu is, is... like exactly too beautiful like at the limit and you know the character is being drawn super beautifully like when charlie cox was cast as daredevil you just kind of thought you you couldn't exceed this sort of pretty and then here we are there's a there's there's one panel that i like think i love the most where shang chi's walking up the stairs in his security jacket and just that mm, that beautiful cake you could like bounce a quarter off of right well in this case two nickels yeah Now, Jonah, were there any things about the art here that helped sell the story for you? One of the things that we have over-relied on as a company, as as an organization that discusses comics, is going to be best exemplified through a common discussion that occurs between myself, Josh, and Arturo, where we discuss the fact that there is legitimately kind of a reliance on X-Men House style to sell us a product. Right. And we as a team rely on that discussion of it. We sort of say, oh, well, everything looks like X-Men lettering. The letters always look beautiful. Oh, everybody's always in their Marauders costume. Everybody looks beautiful. But when you step outside of that X bubble, you have to sort of visually imagine the character. I'll be honest, this interpretation of Lady Deathstrike, I had to think about it. Did this fit where I had last seen her? And the last place I remembered seeing her was over in the pages of Weapon X, Totally Awesome Hulk, starring Amadeus Cho, better known as Bra and you know she did look like this it did look a little x-men 2 ish a little bit not really but a little bit but you know it was an interesting thing to step back into jonah how do you feel about stepping outside of the confines of the very specific although always varied and beautiful world of the x-men for art in the marvel universe at New York Comic Con 2019, I was looking for a bunch of prints to buy because that's literally everything I buy when I go to cons, and I'm only just starting now to uh, hang things up properly in uh, frames. And let me tell you, it's a game changer instead of just taping it to your wall. I saw somebody selling a Nightcrawler print, and I was like, oh, cool, I really want that. So I bought it, and who I later found out was Rochelle Rosenberg. I was like, do you want me to sign it? And I was like, yeah, sure. I didn't know who she was at the time oh no <laughs> but it was really so i have a side poster of nightcrawler that she colored um <laughs> that i have hanging <laughs> up and i think it's a really funny story i your your art's really great i like your colors i'm sorry i didn't know who you were <laughs> I, I just really wanted the nightcrawler well there's nothing wrong with coming into your fandom at your own speed and now you appreciate her work and you know it we we doing this free promotion twice and three times a week but the art here something i actually really like about this this book for the legend of shang chi the action pose i think this book has a lot of really dynamic action to it that i think really helps very specifically the the chase sequence lady deathstrike has the equinox blade and she's running away from shang chi trying to get to the trying to get to the roof to escape it's very similar to parkour in the way that they were drawn in the action 
reaction shot and I was like, that's really cool. And I wonder if that was the inspiration for the poses of what these characters were doing. Because it was, it was the, the way that they were drawing, uh, it just reminded me so much of that. And I was like, damn, that's really cool. A lot of the art here I just really enjoyed because I think it worked for what we're trying to tell. It feels like a very shaded, darker book that I think adds to what the more nuanced themes that that's trying to go for. And it relies a lot, a lot less on like outlines that I actually really do enjoy. It looks simple, but I think there's a lot more detail to it when you get into it. And I really enjoy that about the art. So I love the styling and I love the coloring and I love the use of all of that. But I also really love the poses that they chose for its action sequences. Yeah. And you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, comparing them that way in particular. I love the action sequences on Daredevil. And I love the action sequences in Avengers Endgame. But I don't expect to see a five-minute single shot in Avengers Endgame. I do expect to see that sort of clever camera work over in Daredevil. So I understand what you mean. There's sort of less of a reliance on the bright, overpowering hope of the colors of Krakoa and a much greater reliance on intricate choreography in Shang-Chi as opposed to stage blocking as they use in X-Men. There's an intimacy to the combat in Shang-Chi that is harder to achieve in X-Men where you're always hoping to balance 17 characters and 13 plots. Yeah, I think the only thing that really compares in X-Men Universe, obviously, is the most street level of the brawlers, Logan, who, you know, his books can focus on him versus a single enemy. Whereas the X-Books, like you said, it's like Avengers Endgame where you've got this big, huge battle and you've got Rogue flying over here and then versus, you know, Magneto versus, you know, whoever. When you have more of the street level type hero book, you can focus more on the intricacies of the battle the the dance of it all and that's what i'm seeing more in this and so within that same x-men kind of landscape you do kind of see it somewhat in wolverine one of the things that shang chi most represents for me as a fan of comics is the same bright hope that mark wade brought to the pages of daredevil that you know i'll be honest i feared that charles sewell nearly squandered but it turns out i am grateful for a lot of the stories he set up as Chip Zardsky's run continues to be a powerhouse week after week. And that's sort of what I'm seeing with Shang-Chi. I'm seeing that evolution, that turning point where all of a sudden the light is coming to this character. He's a character I've known, but he's a character that I've never thought shone quite so brightly. And of course it is thanks to the pen of guys like Ed Brubaker, who over in the pages of Secret Avengers crafted some pretty significant Shang-Chi stories. And now we, of course, see attention to Asian voices helping to craft the narrative of Shang-Chi as opposed to just Asian influence coming onto the character. And I couldn't be more excited. Guys, we have at least two more issues of the ongoing title. I know we're going to see more about these houses and the family evolving, but you know, I do hope that we get to see a little bit more of these magical artifacts. Perhaps not these magical artifacts. That's a little too much to hope, but <laughs> I could really 
enjoy a little bit more attention on this sort of responsibility as a keeper of the great objects. Like, it's a really dynamic sort of expression of the character. What do you guys hope, if anything, continues from these... Oh, and Lady Deathstrike. What do you guys hope uh, reappears (laughs) from these two stories? I would obviously love Lady Deathstrike to reappear because that was amazing. But I would love to keep learning more and more about this character who is walking this moral tightrope line with trying to reform a criminal enterprise, but also still trying to keep it together and keeping the respect. So there's a lot of moral tightrope walking that you've got to do to do that. And, and also this book proved to me, like if Nico's like, hey, I want you to cover this, just just read it, Nathan, just read it. So if you guys like anything that I like, you're going to love this book. I just think it's so tremendous that we got to talk about a book that had a woman writer on a story that had a majority female characters in it. And it was just tremendous. I was just so happy. It was just so great to get to talk about it. And it's just so unusual to get to talk about a story with so much emphasis on women in comics. And while there's sadly no women on this panel, this is the B-side to an episode that features two incredible women in comics professionals talking about craft in the form of Tori Sheehan interviewing Ariana Marr in X's for Podcast paneling, a discussion on form. And I could not be prouder to bring that to you guys. Now, Jonah, this was your first Lady Deathstrike. This was only like your fourth and fifth Shang-Chi stories. And I'm very curious, what do you hope, if anything, to see from these stories continue, whether it's thematic or direct? I would love to see the continued use of family, of going against modernism versus tradition and what that means, how to incorporate modernism into your traditions. There's a lot of interesting stories that can come out of that. Also, I am a fan of when we see characters fight other characters that they normally don't. So like seeing Shang-Chi fight Lady Deathstrike, that's really cool. That's like a lot of fun. I like more of that. I think it adds something that's a little more fun and helps bridge the entire world together so more of that give him another villain doesn't that specifically be an x-men villain but like give him give him somebody else's villain yeah i i love trading villains there have been multiple crossovers all about it because Uh, everybody knows everybody knows how to fight off their own their own bad guy but how do you fight somebody else's bad guy 